This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. If you're listening to this on Friday, as the podcast goes out, you can catch me on Have I Got News For You tonight, which was fun, with Diane Morgan and Desiree Birch and Ian Islop and Paul Mutton. So there we are. Right, coming up on today's episode, 1974 and all that. The last time Britain hosted Eurovision on behalf of someone else was back in 1974, the one that ABBA won. So we take a look at the music, the society and the politics of 1974 and my current theory that next year might be like 1974 with two general elections. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with the columnist panel. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott. I was hunched on my bedroom floor of my laptop, frantically battering away at my column. On Times Radio. And we say hello to India Knight. Hello, India. Good morning. And uh, here looking very smart. Thank you very much. I, I do look pretty. I do look pretty good today. I think um, in so, my suit. So you've got uh, what colour is it? Is it a black suit or is it slightly um, brown? I think it's. I think you'd call it a charcoal. Charcoal, uh, and he's got a white shirt on and a very nice, a lovely floral, floral tie. tie. My girlfriend got for me. It's very nice. Thank you. Can you see him, India? Yes, I can see him. I'm extremely impressed. Where are you going, James? <laughs> I think he's got a job interview. No, I'm. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going. I'm going for lunch. Um, in a posh, yeah, in where? a posh, in, in a posh environment. Is it is it a private members club where you have to wear a tie? It, it, I can't actually remember which one it is now that I'm broadcasting about it. Um, I have to check my emails when I go downstairs. <laughs> Wait, don't, don't say where it is, James, because you get hordes of fans. That's up they have to, yeah, I have to creep in the back door, but obviously, you know, <laughs> used to that. Very discreet, very discreet. <laughs> well, anyway, it's nice. It's nice that you've popped in. Yeah, really, I've just dressed up for this show. Can you show. tell us who you're having lunch with? No, this is all top. This is all top is secret. It top, is, um, it, is it a famous person? This is this is how journalism happens behind the scenes. Yeah. people have lunch with one another. And is that what we don't disclose who we're lunching with? No. Well, let's just wait and sit in silence until he tells. Right, let's start with um, politics in Eurovision. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has been barred from addressing the audience at Eurovision because the European Broadcasting Union has ruled the competition is uh, should be of a non-political nature. What do you think about this, India? Should uh, President Zelensky be able to address Eurovision? 
I get the principle that it should be um, not a political thing, but it's Zelensky. We are hosting um, because Ukraine is uh, indisposed at the moment. Everything is blue and yellow. I was watching the semi-finals last night. It's absolutely ludicrous to pretend <laughs> that. I mean, it's it's bananas. If you want to make it non-political, then don't kind of theme it around Ukraine. Um, and the fact that this heroic man might want to pop up and say, you know, thank you and hurrah and go Ukraine. It w- would would make absolutely no difference to the tenor of the whole thing. So no, it's completely silly. Although I do understand the principle, but you know that it's it, it the, that ship sailed a long time ago in this particular respect. And it's sort of uh, yeah, I couldn't really understand because so much of it is is quite clearly political. A lot of the voting is political. Countries yeah, are allies support for each other for a long yeah. time. Everybody hated us uh, for I can't remember, what was it was it Iraq people didn't like us for the start, but then obviously Brexit afterwards. What do you think, James? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm a little more sympathetic than India because I do get the principle that when you know when you let one politician speak, well, then which other politicians are going to want to speak when it's their you know when it's their home country? If it's held in Russia, and Putin says, "Well, I want to make a speech because you know, in my view, my political case is as good as Zelensky's," are, does abandoning that kind of impartiality principle um, take you into some kind of uncomfortable places? But, I mean, obviously, there's a pretty special case for Zelensky. I mean, his country was literally invaded. And, I, yeah, I am ultimately, obviously, Team Zelensky. But I sort of, I get it. I, I get why it's not an obvious and easy decision. It's good that, you know, it's not an obvious thing. I mean, thing. part of me just thinks it wouldn't be that weird if they just had a video from Rishi Sunak, would it? I mean, if it's just in a country... Ah, uh, people political, politically but it's not grandstanding... But, but, minister, but it, well, it wouldn't let him come on and say, vote Tory... Yeah, uh, or you know, but like welcome to the UK. Yeah, welcome to the yeah. UK. You know, I've uh, I've always been a big fan of your vision. I hope you have a great night. That's all right. Isn't yeah, it? Sometimes and you I, I mean, come I guess on and say your vision is an example of leveling up Liverpool. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that may happen. That would be that would be terrible. Yeah, but I think I don't know. Maybe it's that it's that thing of thinking that any politician must be doing something political, rather than if if you know, Zelensky just comes on and say says. Thank you to the city of Liverpool for hosting you. Yeah, reason. it does make sense. Have it's really weird. This should be in Ukraine. Yeah. Why is it not? Yeah. 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 That's anyway. Some people are very cross about it. Let, know, let us know what you uh, what you think about that. Are you, will you be watching Eurovision, James? Absolutely. I've never seen Eurovision. I never intend to start watching it. Why not? Uh, I feel like it wouldn't be my thing. Well, how will you know? Um, I'm very prejudiced. <laughs> <laughs> You're a snob, aren't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my wife's been in touch saying leave James alone yeah exactly well thank you I like your wife uh, India will you be watching Eurovision I might be watching Eurovision if I haven't got anything better to do it's really interesting the evolution of, of Eurovision because it used to be the sort of niche very camp you know minority interesting and now particularly this year it seems to me presumably because it's in the UK but it's been sort of incrementally happening for a few years it's become this sort of massive um, you know, people have parties and people dress up and people theme their sitting rooms or their sofas. Um, I suppose that's quite a good thing. I mean, it, it, it add, you know, I think it adds to um, the gaiety of of, uh, of life. But yeah, I might watch it or I might not. I wonder, I I wonder whether it's a it. bit like, because I, I, I'm quite, I'm not, I don't really follow it. I don't need to know that Finland are the favourites or whatever right now. But I will probably watch it and I'll get quite into it and that'll be the end of it. My, my site, because yeah. I, I feel like this year might be the year, there was a summer when everyone was talking about Love Island. And I never watched it. And then, uh, then I think I caught a bit of it. I thought, this is dreadful. Then the following year, nobody seemed to be talking about it. Do, you know, do, do, it, this might, is this peak Eurovision, James? 
Oh God, I, don't, I, I literally, I'm so badly placed to answer this. <laughs> All I know is my experience of Eurovision is it happens. Then there will be like clips on Twitter of some like, there's always seems to be these slightly sort of death metal Scandinavians all dressed in preposterous <laughs> costumes, yeah. playing ridiculous guitars. And I think that looks completely dreadful. I'm so glad I didn't watch Eurovision this year and have um, <laughs> declined all my Eurovision party invitations, of which actually they're not, they're not very many, but there is actually at least one this year, which I will not be attending. Um, yeah, I don't know. If it's peak Eurovision, good riddance. <laughs> That's probably um, a correlation between everybody getting massively into Eurovision when times are quite grim and there isn't much yeah. fun stuff about. Yeah. Um, uh, by which criterion it would be absolutely peak Eurovision this year. That's really interesting. And actually, we'll hear a bit later on. Will Hodgkinson talking about 1974 when Abba won and the, the, the early 70s when life was really grim was sort of peak, cheesy, big, disposable mm. pop because people sort of took refuge in in that. Yeah, there's so many national occasions for coming together recently, though, like Coronation, the Jubilee, the Queen's Funeral, um, the Coronation Concert. You know, yeah. everyone, I don't know, why are these proliferating? We have to be in front of our TVs at the same time. I think I'm done with, you know, experiencing things collectively with the rest of the nation. <laughs> <laughs> well, were you, did you, did you join the rest of the nation in watching the local election results come in, Joe? Uh, no. Right. Uh, well, well, we've got, never mind you, Joe, we don't need you, we've got our very own John Curtis on the panel, because uh, last week, India predicted that Mid-Sussex Council would go green, and it did. You know John Curtis, is there not like a mini John Curtis, is there a mini John Curtis kind of in the wings somewhere? Because he has such an extreme monopoly, and he's a man of a certain age, and you just wonder what happens after John Curtis. <laughs> It's like um, it's like the travel editor of the Independent, who's Simon <laughs> Simon. I can't remember. Simon Calder. Simon Calder for twenty or thirty years. Every single time there's a travel story, up pops Simon Calder. All newspapers have travel editors. Why is it always him? Is he? Is he coming on later? He's coming on at midday. Simon Calder. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> we put John Curtis as well. Him. You Why is it him? Is he like killed off all the others? You, d you know your holiday is not going to go well if you're sitting at the airport and you spot Simon Calder. <laughs> it's like um, uh, Lise Doucette turning up somewhere. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a bad sign for your holidays. Or, um, or Le Garin. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, it's a good question. I mean, there are other pollsters, but John Curtis is the, is the sort of the holy grail. Um, but are there pollsters in training? Yes, I mean, we use, you know, is James Johnson. James come, Johnson is going to be... James Johnson who comes on He's already pretty ubiquitous. Groups. Yeah. He's going to be around for a very long time. He's not ubiquitous, James. He's, he's, he's prestige, and we have him on the oh, show. Oh, yes. yes. He's, uh, he's, to book him is, you know, only the most prestigious and uh, yeah, well-listened right. to radio stations <laughs> to get him. Anyway, India, I was trying to pay you a compliment that your, yeah, your, your, your yes, political please. crystal ball gazing paid I know, off. my tremendous wisdom, my tremendous political wisdom. I was pleased that they got in, um, and I think it just goes to show, well, I think what it goes to show, actually, is that people vote very differently in local elections than they do at uh, general elections, because as far as I can ascertain, I mean, it's interesting, it's, this is, you know, farming country, um, and so it's, it seems extraordinary that, uh, that the Greens should have got in, but I think they campaign, apparently, very, very brilliantly on hyper-local issues, and obviously... As they go about their daily lives, those are the things that people really, really mind about. It'd be really interesting to see. I just think, I just think, uh, local elections are not necessarily the great bellwethers of of what happens at a general. Absolutely. I mean, I think Labour will get in, but but. Um, yeah, it'll be quite interesting to watch. Somebody's just been in touch, Polly. I think I might have said Mid Sussex. It's actually Mid Suffolk. 
Suffolk, 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 Suffolk yeah. yeah. Which uh, they doubled their seats, the Greens, from 24 to 34. Uh, no, they doubled their seats to 24 out of 34 seats on the council. Uh, Pretty now, impressive. The interesting thing you, you say about the, you know, the people vote differently in a general election, in, consistently in the uh, YouGov tracker poll that we use, about one in ten people who voted Labour at the last election now say they're going to vote Green. Um, and I suppose interesting. it's interesting if, to, to the extent to which Keir Starmer, by reaching into Tory votes... How many p? How many he sort of bleeds out to the side, or does he manage to hold together the coalition? And it's an interesting mm. um, uh, challenge for him. What do you think, James, about the Greens? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I, certainly I know a lot of you know kind of the kind of slightly left wing metropolitan type who would say, oh, you know, I might vote, might vote Labour, might vote Green, and there's kind of there's not a lot keeping them in 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 Labour, you know, because if you're going to vote. Mm you know, I guess, in a kind of left-wing, in a left-wing way and sort of pride yourself on, on this. I know people who, alter- I, know, I feel like I know a lot of people who kind of alternate and that, you know, is quite easily can slip out one side of that. But then it's interesting, you know, Greens have made gains in some areas, but they went backwards in Brighton, which is where they sort of started out there, you know, they've got their first MP there and, you know, and it's that whole thing of, you know, when you've been in power for a little bit, it turns out, you have to face all the same challenges as other parties. Yeah, so. exactly. And it's kind of interesting to see whether the um, whether the Greens will ever get the kind of proper momentum in Britain and yeah. you know become a sort of major party like in Germany. You know, yeah. they've gone from being a minor party to a major. But party then, as all player. that's down to having PR because you know they're in yes. they're in yeah. uh, coalition in Scotland. Or they're, you know, in a deal with yeah. uh, the SNP in Scotland because of the, the voting system. Uh, somebody's just texted in saying, "I was on a train recently with Simon Calder." I mean, that, I assume that's a trade that's not going anywhere. Uh, says, I've never seen someone be asked for so many selfies, especially by people in their 20s. He's a cult hero. Wow. Right, so next. Uh, Keir Starmer's autobiography remains unwritten. Uh, he was going to write an autobiography. He got an £18,000 advance for his autobiography. Even he couldn't get to the end of his own autobiography. Uh, and he's not going to write it. Uh, and it's now going to become a biography instead. So I've been asking for book titles for uh, Keir Starmer's uh, book. Uh, Bob says, I Keir, which is nice. Keep it simple. Uh, Mike says, by bouncing back. Max says, how to beat insomnia. Uh, someone on Twitter says, labour of love. My dad was a toolmaker. Uh, very nice. Uh, giving up the ghost. I'm very positive these. Anna, unfinished business. Um, this is very nice. Nick says, where the, where the centrist dads sing. Uh, it's very nice. Uh, and someone on the text just suggests song titles like More Than a Woman. And principles, I have a few, but then again, too few to mention. So... Uh, are you disappointed, James Marriott, that you're not going to get to read Keir Starmer in his own words? Somewhat, because I think he has a genuinely, although he's obviously a very boring man on the surface, he has a genuinely interesting and slightly tragic life story. You know, he has a kind of genuine story of social mobility as he, you know, spent so much time insisting with his dad being a toolmaker. Um, you know, his mum is very ill. And the, you know, the Piers Morgan interview he did a couple of years ago where, you know, most politicians can kind of rattle off stuff about their life and, you know, sort of hold it together. But he sort of started, I think he was almost crying, talking about how his dad had never said he was proud of him. Yeah. And I think there's actually a lot 
there that you don't see on the surface that I would be interested to be told about? Because I think it's one of those people who's maybe sort of very like, you know, not very interesting on the surface, but that is holding in a lot of stuff underneath. And I would love to kind of know what is going on. Can I make a counter-argument? Go on. I think he's just a very normal person and has basically the life experience of most normal people. Do you think? Yeah. Normal people become leader of the Labour Party? Well, no, but no, but no, I mean, in terms of his... He tries to egg up, well, my dad was a toolmaker yeah. and actually ran a factory. His dad had a job. His mum had a job. They lived in a house. He went to school. He got a job. I just... I find there's something a bit weird about Keir Starmer. That sort of up, real uptightness. Yeah. Obviously so ambitious. You know, such a kind of extraordinary career. What, but you do, and because you don't see any of it on the surface, the, because he doesn't, you don't you think there get might be where hidden shallows. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe this is optimistic. I'm trying to be a contrarian here. <laughs> um, India, what, what, what do you think? Because I, mean, I, I suppose the other point is that if he had written this book as a pre-election thing, which is a sort of slightly American import of everyone writes mm. their memoirs, you know, while they're running for office, we're not going to get the real uncensored Keir Starmer in a book twelve months no. before an election. I would I would probably read a, a really good, meaty biography of him because actually, well, I sort of fall somewhere between you and James, but like James, I think that somebody so controlled and so repressed and so correct in everything he does has that wild, roiling stuff going on inside. <laughs> and and um, I mean, I, I just do. Nobody, nobody is like that. Nobody is that permanently composed by accident therefore something has happened something's at some point on. yeah something's yeah something's happened at some point to make him think okay if i want to go through life in the way that i want to go through life i have to be like this but so i do think there is that there are hidden well hidden yeah hidden shallows which would be nice it's jolly I mean, it's quite you quite want people to have hidden shallows sometimes so i think actually i'm more likely to read uh tom baldwin's biography of him than um anything he might have written entirely on on his own Although, which uh, i sort of suspect would have been really dry and chronological and then we went here and then we went there and then i said that you know it needs autobiography is a really is not an easy medium mm. and you need somebody with a bit of vision to kind of zhuzh it all up and maybe rejig it and not tell it chronologically and not you know yeah. so that you don't sort of you don't you don't flip past the first 30 pages because yeah, they were skip the school and they're boring <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so not... somebody with skilled would probably has quite potentially quite rich material to work with if they can prize him open like an yeah, oyster yeah, yeah. i'm just yeah i'm not sure that what is essentially so tom baldwin was helping him write the autobiography and now he's going to write the essentially authorised biography so he's just going to change I went there and it did, did that to he went there and did that um, so I'm not sure isn't it probably next they're going to change the tone or the revelatory nature of it but we'll see maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm wrong we'll see uh, right um, uh, well Keir Starmer's prospects of becoming uh, Prime Minister apparently depend not on Mondeo man Waitrose woman Stevenage woman Workington man or one of the others uh, apparently, according to uh, Laura Prendergast in The Spectator, uh, we now need to be talking about Millennial Millie. She's a h aspirational home counties girl. She enjoys reading The Times. Yeah, 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 yeah. And wearing Vija trainers. Is that how you pronounce that, James? You're a young person. I was actually reading this article out loud to my girlfriend last night and I stumbled over the same... Vija, Vija, Vija. Kate. Veja. Veja. Ve oh, oh, of course, what, Yeah, Veja. Yeah, Trainers. And one day wants to have her own home and children of her own. With good friends and a good degree, Vili Millie feels hashtag blessed. God, she sounds awful. Um, uh, but is this right? Should we be thinking about uh, Millennial Millie's? Uh, Luke Trill is director of More in Common uh, and uh, joins us now. Hi, Luke. 
Hi, how are you doing? So, I'm very good, I'm very good. So does Millennial Millie exist? Um, well, she does exist, uh, and I should uh, be careful about what I say, because from what we know about her, especially if she's working from home today, she's likely to be listening to Times Radio. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, but I said she was awful. What I mean is she sounds brilliant. <laughs> uh, so I'll be polite. So we think, uh, digging into everything that Lara says about um, Millennial Millie, you know, she's a millennial, graduate, renting, uh, and a Times reader. It's probably about 50,000 of her uh, across the country, so not huge. <laughs> but not insignificant. Yeah. Um, I think where the problem probably comes is that uh, millennium, millennial Millie is fairly set on how she's going to vote. Uh, she is not a swing voter. She actually probably voted for Jeremy Corbyn in 2019, looking at our data, and she's almost certain to vote for Keir Starmer um, at the next election, if you look um, at that group. It's definitely true that she likes Rishi more than the average voter, but she also actually, interestingly linking back to your previous conversation, actually likes Starmer a lot more too. So she'd probably read his book. She'd be one of the people who actually yeah, read his book. She would be one of those people. Yes. What, do you, uh, what do you think, India? Uh, millennial Millie, should we be worried about her? I think Millennial Mini Millie should um, should marry Dino. Dino yes. is... Uh, I'm a big fan of Dino. Term. It says here, snooty term used to describe aspirational lower middle class male but he's got a house Dino crucially yeah. it's a new build which according to the piece Millie Dallison doesn't like but if Millie put her prejudices aside and hooked up with Dino <laughs> A they would aerate their respective gene pools which is always a very good thing they'd have a roof over their head they'd probably have a laugh and they could vote however they wanted to vote and it would be fine Millie on her own makes me sort of slightly I can't I don't love Millie the sound of <laughs> no, Millie as described by Laura what, Prendergast what Dino needs to do is get himself a nice shirt and tie yeah. Like, like young James here and go round and see Millie and then they'll all live happily ever after. Yeah. Exactly. Indian Night and James Marrick there and of course you can read both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're going back to 1974. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. A Conservative Prime Minister in the grip of an energy crisis, forcing ministers to plead with the public to turn the lights off. Soaring inflation, leaving millions struggling to make ends meet. Strikes bringing the country to a standstill. 
the wobbling of power sharing in Northern Ireland, and Britain having to step in to host Eurovision because the previous year's winners could not. Welcome to 1974. going on. Real life was pretty grim in 1974. No wonder Britain and the rest of Europe took solace in bright, bold, cheesy, disposable pop. Well, Will Hodgkinson is the Times' chief rock and pop critic. He's author of Imperfect Harmony, sing-along pop in 70s Britain. So Will takes us back to that Eurovision night in 1974 when ABBA came to personify the power of pop. They also came to personify the power of Europe because you've got to remember that it was only a year before that uh, Ted Heath's dream of European integration became a reality against a lot of resistance, actually, which gets forgotten now. But that was um, a huge part of it. And um, before then, Britain had not really been very integrated at all. I mean, this was also the birth of the package holiday. So, you know, up until, I'd say, the 1960s, it'd be quite unusual for the average working class family to go abroad. So suddenly you had the exposure to Europe. But before, uh, and, and certainly not European pop music before, before this, but, you know, with, when ABBA came along, they couldn't get a deal outside of Sweden at all before Eurovision. And, and don't forget, they were a big band in Sweden. It wasn't that they hadn't had success, they had. But I spoke to um, Bjorn Arveus about it, and he said that there was a conception at the time that Sweden was a hotbed of promiscuity and um, you know beautiful young women, I think mainly because of an art film, quite a boring art film actually, called I Am Curious Yellow, which people, people had seen. And, uh, he's, and he said that you know, they just couldn't get anywhere. Their first single was released on Playboy Records in America under the title Svenska Flicker, which translates as Pretty Girl. So that was the only interest they could get. And then Waterloo came along and changed everything. And some people, when they look back on the 70s, they think of the cool stuff, whether it's the birth of punk or, you know, they forget about that maybe it's because pop seems so disposable. But actually, striking thing, particularly with your, you, I know you write about this a lot in your book, but because life was so grim that actually upbeat, cheesy, happy pop was where people sort of took solace. Oh, completely. I mean, I'd say that uh, the um, the soundtrack to the three-day week was Merry Christmas, Everybody by Slade, which is not a religious song at all. You know, it's a Christmas song. There's nothing, there's no mention of Christianity. It's all about looking to the future. And, you know, this is a time when the TV would flick off at half past ten, when... Um, you know, there was there was actually talk of rationing books in the you know in the post being being brought back to the post office. It was that bad um, because it wasn't just uh, you know wildcat strikes. It was also the Arab-Israeli oil crisis, which had uh, you know sent 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 oil prices rocketing. So it all happened at once um, in a way which I think bears quite a lot of comparison with what's been happening now, or at least in the last year or so. And then what's interesting that happens politically in 1974 is that you have Ted Heath, who's been around for a long time, and then Howard Wilson's the comeback kid. And he was the politician who really seemed to have captured the mood of the 60s, you know, in emulating lots of what JFK was doing. But normally in a, in a big general election, one side or the other is the one who's like capturing the zeitgeist. But when you've got a rerun prime minister up against the, the tide struggling prime minister, was there anyone in politics who was capturing... The, the zeitgeist in that way this time? 
Well, I think you know, there, there are people who capture it in, in horrible ways. You know, you have to remember how, how popular Enoch Powell was. Yeah. And there was, the, there was this huge anti-immigration sentiment at the time, which I think does come out inevitably when things are tough. You know, Enoch Powell was really, really popular and a very worrying um, threat, actually. I mean, you know, Ted Heath, I think he chucked him out of the party. Yeah. But, um, you know, he was, it was a, you know, a real danger. And, and, of course, the thing about Harold Wilson is that he'd so uh, captured the 60s, as you rightly say, but by the 70s, he was yesterday's man, kind of tired, you know, and it, well, he wasn't the effective um, leader that he had been. So, you know, all of this was going on with, the, with you know, joining Europe, and I know it seems like the most unpolitical thing in the world, but Eurovision somehow summarised this this sort of new age, and I think it did give people a lot of hope. And Eurovision prior to this had been very a very serious song contest. It had been you know these kind of rather mournful ballads, and then ABBA came along and they represented this new European world which people were getting interested in. So it was a it was a sort of glimmer of hope, and it was also the suggestion that other countries they were having a lot more fun in other countries than they were in Britain. You know, not not all of Europe was was sinking in the mire in the same way that Britain was at the time. Certainly not places like Germany. Certainly not Sweden. So that was the other thing that happened. And I think this, I think this is why Eurovision started to become so attractive. Who was the British entry in 1974? Well, it was the the very Australian Olivia Newton John. Oh, of course. And it, it was also Britain gave ABBA zero points. That's something worth remembering. You know, they did not want them to win. And so, yeah, they wanted out. They wanted, I think she was called People Need Love, the uh, the, the Olivia Newton-John song. And, you know, obviously she needed more love than she got because, you know, she didn't win. And, they, and, and you know, <laughs> Waterloo won against Britain's wishes. No, no points from Britain. Amazing. Who knew? Uh, Will Hodgkinson, chief rock and pop critic from The Times. So when Eurovision was being held in Brighton in April 1974, Howard Wilson had been back in Downing Street as Prime Minister for barely a month, although he didn't seem very happy about it. We've got a job to do. We can only do that job as one people, and I'm going right in to start that job now. So in February that year, the Conservative Prime Minister, Edward Heath, had sought to break the economic and political deadlock in Britain by calling an election. So for four years, he had, like so many Tory PMs since, been wrestling with the twin perils of Europe and the economy. Having taken Britain into the common market in 1973 in the face of major opposition, Heath was entangled in serious economic and industrial unrest. In an attempt to break that and secure a mandate to fight back, on February the 7th, Edward Heath announced a snap general election for just three weeks' time. Michael Cockrell was a BBC reporter working on the election coverage. He sets the scene. In early 1974, Ted Heath had um, a comfortable majority. He had... Um, about 18 months still to, to serve with that, that, that um, majority. But the country was in total chaos. There was a, there was a miners' strike threatened, and then the, 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 the miners voted by, with an 80, 80% majority to go on strike. There, there was a huge energy crisis, and um, Ted Heath had decided to deal with the energy crisis um, by calling a three-day week. Uh, people could only go to work um, for three days of, of the week. 
there would be no television after 10.30. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was extraordinary. Uh, we were working by candlelight a lot of the time. Patrick Jenkin, uh, the energy secretary, said to people, you've got to save energy. And the, way, the best way to do it is to get up in the dark and clean your teeth in the dark. <laughs> um, this was one way of doing it. There was, it was kind of madness going on. It was that Heath had called a, a state of emergency. And he decided that the, the thing to do was to go to the country with a who governs Britain election slogan. Was it, was it the government or, or the trade unions? And, and it, was, it was sort of unique, uh, uh, an election in uh, at the very end of February, a who governs Britain election. And he, Heath was up against Harold Wilson. Harold Wilson had won the 1964 uh, general election, and then had a, another, by a very, very small majority, then had another election in, in 1966, which he'd won by a landslide, nearly 100. But he'd lost to Heath in uh, 1970, when Heath surprised everyone and won the 1970 election uh, with, with a comfortable majority. So Heath decided, you know, to forego his comfortable majority and have a uh, who governs Britain uh, election? Yeah. But, you know, looking around the streets and and the the, the strikes and uh, the raging inflation, which had uh, which was starting at that stage. There had been um, the 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 Yom Kippur War uh, uh, in Israel and uh, uh, against the the, the Arab countries um, in seventy three, and the price of oil had uh, quadrupled. See any um, comparisons now? <laughs> this is why. This is why my my theory that next year could be seventy four all over again is uh, it, it, yeah it gets gets stronger by the moment. Of course, the other thing that everyone's been talking about this week is is possible coalition talks, the role of the, exactly. of the Lib Dems, the third party, in all this. Right. And there's a third man in this 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 Absolutely. this drama of nineteen seventy four. Jeremy Thorpe, the morning after. The uh, election in February '74 um, sneaked out the back door of his house and yomped across a muddy field in order to avoid the cameras and go and talk coalitions, possible coalitions, with Ted Heath. And you, as well as following obviously uh, what Ted Heath was doing, you made films about Jeremy Thorpe and Howard Wilson at that time. That's exactly right. Yeah, no, I filmed. I made a film during that whole election campaign. Jeremy Thorpe was an extraordinary character. Um, he was he was by far the most charismatic of the th the three leaders. He he used to wear these um, double breasted waistcoats and and uh, trilby hat and um, uh, he was a, he was a showman, an, an old Etonian showman. Ah, where well, we've seen one of those <laughs> before. And uh, he uh, everyone r rather loved him. He had a very good sen sense of humour. I remember filming with him uh, during the 1974, the February 74 election, um, and um, he, in his constituency because he had he had a wafer thin, thin seat uh, majority, 300 and. Um, 57. I remember he said to me that when, when he was first elected in 1959, he had um, a majority of 352, but now he has a majority of 359. And he said to me, and I know who all those seven people are. <laughs> he used to <laughs> go, go round uh, when he was canvassing, and he, he seemed to know every, every a person in his constituency. At least he um, would say, hello, Colonel. Hello, Grandma, and things like that, <laughs> uh, if he didn't really remember their names. 
And I remember also I, I filmed Harold Wilson during that, and uh, he gave us he gave us access to film. And I said to him, um, "You were forty eight when you became prime minister. It's ten years later. You've lost one election and won two. Um, if you if you won the, this election and the, this." Everyone thought he was going to lose, um, and Wilson himself looked a shadow of his his previous self. People wondered if he'd had a stroke or something like that at the start of the election campaign. And I said, "How how long would you you stay in government if uh, if you if you were to win?" He said, "Well, you know, um, the problem would be, uh, am I too young for the job? Because uh, you know that Gladstone was eighty four when he formed his last ministry, so I've got another twenty five years to go." <laughs> So he had this very good sense of humour, um, Harold Wilson. Michael Cockle, the legendary uh, BBC documentary maker, painting a scene of the politics of 1974. So still to come, the story of the two men who fought those two elections in 74. And is Rishi Sunak the Ted Heath of his day? Is Keir Starmer Harold Wilson? So, for all the talk of today's politics being like 1992 or 1997, let just posit the idea, could it be 1974? The Rishi Sunak will go to the polls, hoping to secure credit for his handling of numerous crises. We'll ask who governs Britain, and then the con- country could respond uncertainly with a hung parliament. Left to Keir Starmer to cling on, and then do a Harold Wilson and calling a second election within months. So back in February 1974, Edward Heath called that election, telling the country this time of strife has got to stop. Only you can stop it. It's time for you to speak with your vote. And the electorate did, and they said no. This is an unprecedented situation. The Prime Minister clearly is in two minds about how this election result is to be interpreted. He is consulting with his senior colleagues. The Labour Party believes that it is in a position to form a government, if necessary a minority government, and to carry out workable policies. This is the indecisive general election of 1974. On February the 28th uh, that year, polling day, Labour gained 14 seats, taking to 301, but 17 short of a majority, but overtaking the, uh, Edward Heath's Conservatives on 297. So as a hung parliament, Heath tried to strike a coalition deal with Jeremy Thorpe's Liberals, but that collapsed. So Howard Wilson became Prime Minister for the second time at the head of a, that minority government. He would limp on for eight months before, before calling a second election, winning a narrow majority of just three seats. And the story of the night, then, is that from all the swings of fortune and the polls and the results, we believe that uh, Labour is now set for having a clear overall majority, although it is still a slender one. And it may, in fact, uh, be difficult to sustain if the going is as hard as Mr Wilson said to us and said to Michael Charlton at Heighton. So, is it all 1974 all over again? Joining me in the studio, Michael McManus is a former political secretary to Edward Heath and author of Edward Heath, A Singular Life. Morning, Michael. Morning. Good to see you. And uh, joining us on the line, Nick Thomas-Simmons is the Labour's Shadow International Trade Secretary, but also author of Harold Wilson, The Winner. Morning, Nick. Good morning, Matt. Good to join you. Good to have you with us. Um... Michael, what do you think? Today we think the current government uh, will wait as long as possible, hoping the economy turns up. Obviously, Ted Heath did the, uh, the opposite thing, and right in the middle of the worst of it all, he called the election. Yes, and I've just been looking at the polls from that time, and I can't make any sense of him calling the election. The, the obvious parallel between 74 and the present day is 
that neither Heath nor Wilson, in terms of public support, public opinion, was really setting the heather alight. You know, they, they were pretty close together, Labour and Tories, in the polls, but there was no great enthusiasm for either of them. People didn't think either of them had the answer to all the country's problems. In those days, what you had was a very resurgent Liberal Party, which, of course, isn't part of the, the situation today. I think it's the big difference. In February '74, Labour's vote fell. Just uh, the Tory vote fell more. Nick, do you think it made a difference that in 74, because, I mean, it's extra, I mean, it seems extraordinary now that you could have someone who'd been Prime Minister for so long, lost an election, then stayed on and then ran again and then returned. Did it make a difference? If it had been anyone else, if it had been a fresher face leading the Labour Party in 74, would Labour have done better? Did it? Was it a problem that Howard Wilson was essentially a sort of retread? You see, I don't think it was a problem because okay. I think Harold had a great achievement in holding the Labour Party together in opposition. Now, he did have a lot of criticism. I mean, the New Statesman wrote a famous leader in 1972 essentially saying that him remaining in the leadership of the Labour Party was a huge problem, not just for the party, but to our politics. What Harold managed to do between 70 and 74 was whereas Labour, when it loses elections, tends to veer off uh, quite far to the left and to lose a few more is the general pattern, uh, he actually managed quite skillfully to hold the different factions together on Europe. Of course, he came up with the solution of the referendum in 1975. But also, although there were some proposals of, you know, pr pretty left-wing proposals, even someone like Dennis Healy famously said he was going to tax the rich so much he was going to make the pipsqueak and all the rest of it, uh, actually... Harold did manage to prevent this very moderate face of the electorate, what, of course, he was to call the social contract. So I think, actually, far from it being a problem that Harold was in the leadership, I think Harold was very important to securing that return to government. And, Nick, um, when you came in to talk about your, your book on Howard Wilson, we talked a lot, about, I think, about whether or not Keir Starmer was the Howard Wilson of 64. Am I over-egging the prospect of it actually being more like 74, that we might have to have two elections. The, the Labour might fall short f the first time and then Keir Starmer will go again. I profoundly hope not, uh, Matt. I think what we are, we are trying to do, obviously, is to win outright. And I think that the local elections, together with the opportunity that we have uh, in Scotland, it's no more than that, by the way, it's an opportunity to earn the trust of the Scottish people, it means I really do think that a Labour majority is very much a realistic prospect for us now, provided, of course, we work extremely hard for every single vote. But I've always said that I think Keir Starmer does belong in this, uh, this post-war Labour tradition of Attlee, Wilson, Blair, because, of course, they are Labour's winners and uh, I backed Keir Starmer for the leadership because I thought he would be another Labour winner. Um, Michael, is uh, Ted Heath in the in the if we were going to do the, the, the similar list of uh, Tory winners? You know, the ones who get seeing so like Margaret Thatcher was the dominant figure of the of the last half century or so. Um, Ted Heath is is sort of maligned more more remembered for the defeat in seventy four than the victory in seventy. Yeah, the victory in seventy uh, effectively is unique in post war history. Mm -hmm. It's uh, winning a working majority from the other party, having a working majority. It just doesn't happen. Normally it takes two elections to do what he achieved. It was, it was unexpected, but you know, he, had, he had a working majority and he rather frittered it away, he threw it away in February 74, but he, he gambled it on Northern Ireland. Uh, but no, his achievement in 1970 was, was unique, really. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Do you think he, you obviously knew him well, did he regret 
going in February 74. Yes, and he was big enough not to blame anybody else. I mean, he, he took the rap for it. Um, I think he lost his faith in democracy a bit that day, to be honest. Uh, but you know, and he, and he, he would. Lost, have... He lost his faith in democracy. Or he lost his faith in the British people. Well, I think uh, I, I think both probably. No, I think he, he felt that the, the British people rather funked it. That they right. they had a hard choice to make and they didn't make it. And you know, the the big story was this hemorrhaging of votes to the Liberals. Um, the Tories got more votes in the February '74 election than Labour, but fewer seats. Yeah. Um, uh, Nick, do you think, I mean, Michael says, you know, but certainly in polling terms, the Lib Dems aren't having a, the same impact as they did in the, the 70s. But then what we saw in the local elections, and it, you know, in the right places, maybe they are. Um, are you concerned that, that, that a resurgent Lib Dems could cost Keir Starmer this majority you're hoping for? No, I, I, I think the difference is that Michael's quite right to highlight that liberal surge in 1974. I think they went up from around about 7% of the vote in 1970 to around about 19% in that first 1974 election. And that clearly did make a difference because the vote share for both the main parties uh, was down. As Michael says, it's just that the Conservative uh, one fell to a greater extent. Today, I think it's very different because if you look at the geography of where the Liberal Democrats, particularly in the local elections, have done well, they're not in areas where they are in competition uh, with the Labour Party. So I think the geographical distribution is very, very different. And far from a Liberal Democrat resurgence in the you know South and Southwest being a barrier to a Labour majority, it, it's the opposite, actually. It, it actually runs alongside a Labour majority. So I think it is a very dif different situation in 2024 to 1974 on that. What about you, uh, Michael? Is Rishi Sunak going to be Ted Heath all over again? Uh, I think the situation is different. I mean, I'm agreeing violently with Nick on this. Um, <laughs> it's fine if you're allowed to. It's a safe space for agreeing. That's fine. Um, no, I, I think the, the local elections suggested a big pattern of anti-Tory voting, quite, the emergence of quite a lot of tactical voting. You know, the Greens benefiting in some places, Lib Dems where they're strong, Labour where they're strong. And that wasn't really happening in 74. It was more a, a pox on both your houses from the voters to Labour and Tory. This feels a bit anti-Tory this time. And I suppose the um, if we're talking Eurovision, which is where we started, uh, Nick, the last, when we last time we won was 1997, just ahead of... Uh, of a Labour victory a few months later. <laughs> well, well, I, I obviously hope that, that that is something that we 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 will uh, see again. But what is also interesting, of course, about 1974, is of course that was the time when we we hosted uh, last hosted yeah. the Eurovision, and of course I think Luxembourg had decided, having had a couple of wins, not to host it on grounds of cost. <laughs> but of course, it was won, wasn't it? I think in 1974, it was down in Brighton and won by Abba's Waterloo, if I recollect correctly. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. In fact, one uh, fact that, um, that was uh, Nick Thomas-Simmons, uh, Labour's Shadow International Trade Secretary, and author of Howard Wilson, the winner. Uh, also, thank you to Michael McManus, author of Edward Heath, A Singular Life. And one final fact about that 1974, when Britain last hosted Eurovision for another country. As Nick was saying, Abba won with Waterloo, and then partied in the Napoleon suite of Brighton's Grand Hotel the same room where, 10 years later, Margaret Thatcher would narrowly survive an IRA bombing of the Conservative Party conference. But that's another story. time for on the podcast today don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes let me know what you think email me matt at times.radio but for now for me matt jolly it's goodbye
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.